Thank you for watching this message from the Bridge Church. Our mission here is to be a church for Christ, for community, and for the city. You're watching a message from our series called Messy Church. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know by emailing us at storiesatthebridgeilm.com. Thank you for watching, and God bless you. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, it's good to see each of you uh, here today. Uh, happy uh, fourth weekend to you. Happy Independence Day. So, uh, so glad that you are, are here with us this weekend. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab it and open it to um, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is in the Second Testament. Um, 1 Corinthians, which is about halfway in the middle of the Second Testament. would love for you to get a Bible and, and get there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's okay. Um, we're going to put the verses on the screen for you. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to be able to give you a copy uh, today for free. You could stop by the resource area on your way out, and we'd love to be able to give you um, a copy completely for free. So glad you're here. My name's Ethan. I'm one of, uh, one of the pastors. So today um, we are going to be continuing our series, um, Messy Church. And today is going to be kind of messy, <laughs> and some of the things that we're going to be addressing are going to be uh, really interesting, as you saw from the scripture passage uh, that was uh, read earlier. And so I am going to be addressing uh, the nature of the Holy Spirit, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually, but also uh, corporately. And I'm going to be talking about all sorts of fun stuff this morning, like speaking in tongues and miracles and prophecy and healings and all sorts of uh, things like that. So what today is actually going to do for us is going to begin a, a five-week process in which, I say process, that sounds boring. It's a five-week season in the life of our church in which we are going to be walking through three chapters in 1 Corinthians. The way that we do it here at the bridge is we like to take the Bible, take a book, and just preach right through a book of the Bible. And so uh, this is really interesting, Fourth uh, of July weekend, teaching on this of all weekends. Uh, but this is just where we've landed uh, in, in, our, in our course of walking through 1 Corinthians. And so so chapters 12, chapters 13, and chapters 14 are all about the Holy Spirit. And so we're liter it's going to take us five sermons to walk th through those three chapters. And I'm personally um, excited about uh, what, th what this is going to look like for us um, as, as a body. And so this is going to be, if you can imagine, kind of like a five-week uh, series, mini-series within the book of 1 Corinthians on the nature of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's presence uh, in, in our life. So um, there are going to be, you are going to have all sorts of interesting questions uh, for me, <laughs> all sorts of interesting questions for others and uh, for yourself that, uh, that you're going to want to be, have answered. And so what we're going to do is a week from today, a Sunday night here at the bridge, we're hosting a forum. It's going to be a forum on the Holy Spirit in which we're going to be walking through practically, uh, kind of as a family, a little bit more of a, a gathering, a little bit more family-like in which we're going to be talking about practically a little bit more of what it looks like for us to be a church that is uh, like what Paul characterizes in our passage for today. And so I want you to be there next Sunday night, 4 o'clock here. If you've got questions, I want to know what your questions are. Um, you can text them. You can email them. Uh, there's a number that is on our screen. There's a number there. Uh, that's Pastor Josh's uh, phone number. I'm just, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to have them all come to my phone. That's the church phone. And so uh, text your questions in. We'd love to be able to know what those are. We'll compile them and then do our best to try to answer them um, in uh, a week from today. Okay? And so today we are going to be uh, jumping in, uh, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. Before I want to uh, jump in, I want to acknowledge a couple things before I jump into the text today. Um, the topic that we're going to be discussing today, the nature of the Holy Spirit, is one of the most controversial subjects in the entire Bible. 
Um, denominations split over things like this. Churches split over things like this. Marriages have ended over things like this. I mean, it is going to be immensely uh, controversial. It is in in the church world, hopefully not so much in here in our church. Um, But I want uh, you to to be encouraged on, on a number of different things. First thing I'll say is that Typically, when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, there are two extremes that are present among Christians, present among churches, uh, denominations, uh, all sorts of uh, different kinds of sects and groups and uh, within Christianity. The first extreme position is what I will characterize as abuse. Abuse. It's Christians and churches who've taken the teaching on the Holy Spirit and abused it and practiced it in such a way uh, that is not biblical. So people who fall into this category are those who take the gifts of the Spirit and then use them inappropriately and unbiblically for personal gain, or for monetary gain, for ministerial gain, or some kind of leadership ministry or something in order to build a ministry in order to fund a private jet, in order to get notoriety, promote book promotions, whatever. Uh, it, it, they are abuses of the way that the Holy Spirit has encouraged for us to think about uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, this would also uh, include people who practice the Holy Spirit in such a way that is contrary to the guidelines that we see in, in, in Scripture. People that are involved in movements that are centered on the Holy Spirit that operate in ways that are clearly forbidden and out of bounds from what Scripture says, specifically in chapter 14, which we'll be getting to in a a few weeks. And anytime you do that, all sorts of chaos and confusion uh, ensues. I'm sure you have seen something on the television that would uh, perhaps be something that seemed to you kind of confusing. And not necessarily everything that the Holy Spirit does, we immediately understand what he's doing, but there is a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion as it is related to this, and that's because of the extreme of abuse. You with me? Abuse? Now, the other extreme is the extreme, the position of abandonment. And this is Christians and churches who avoid the power and the work of the Holy Spirit altogether because they don't believe the Holy Spirit works today as he did in the times of the Bible, or perhaps because they are uncomfortable even entertaining the idea that the Holy Spirit could still work like that. Uh, These are the... um, the folks that I like to call the frozen chosen. Uh, maybe you grew up in a, a church like that. The only reason you raise your hand is if you have a question. Why else would you ever raise your hand uh, in, in church? Uh, these are, would be churches that believe that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. You know, it's like, you forgot about the Holy Spirit in there. You know, you got to talk about the Holy Spirit. He is pretty important in the life of the church. And so as a church... Um, We don't fall into either of those two extreme categories, but I do have a conviction that most of us perhaps have a woefully inadequate view of the Holy Spirit's work and presence in our lives. And I think that personally, most of us need to go through what I would call a Holy Spirit awakening in your life, just as many of you have perhaps gone through a, a gospel awakening. So I'll say it like this. One of the things that I absolutely love about our church is that we talk about Jesus all the time. We, we love Jesus. I mean, Jesus, we believe he's, he's, he's at the center, not that he is more important or different or better than any of the members of the Trinity, but if you look at the, at the, uh, at the scriptures, it's a story, um, and primarily the, the, the face of that story is, is Jesus. It's God the Son, Jesus Christ, and, and we, we love that. And so perhaps you came to the bridge, uh, perhaps you came to some other kind of church or, or whatever, and you experienced what I would call a gospel awakening. 
which means you understand that Christianity isn't primarily about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. And your mind is just blown and awakened to the nature of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. It radically reorients your heart and everything that is in your life. It's a, it's a gospel awakening. And I would say that many of us, including myself, need to have a Holy Spirit awakening, which means recognizing who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and how he works in our lives and in our church, because I think many of us are probably uh, uninformed about the way that God would want to move in that way. Here's David Platt. he, He says this. It's kind of a scary quote. He says this. We have created a whole host of means and methods for doing ministry today that require little to no help from the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fast and pray for the church to grow. We have marketing for that. We don't have to pray for the crowds to come. We have publicity for that. But it is possible, dangerously possible, for you and I to carry on the machinery and activity of the churches we lead, and it can be smooth, and it can be successful, and we'd never notice the Holy Spirit is absent from it. And what I'm not saying is that the Holy Spirit isn't present in our church. I believe He is. I mean, you just look, look at the stories, look at the life change, you just see what God has done over the past couple of years. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's the work of, of the Holy Spirit. But I think that there is, for us, a lot of room that we could grow as a church and as a congregation in recognizing what the Holy Spirit does, His work and His presence in our lives. And I believe the way that, I think an easy way to characterize it is this. I believe that the church, every church, should be a church that is characterized as a, wor- a church of the Word and a church of the Spirit. So church of the Word, that means the Word of God, Scripture, the Bible. That means we love the Bible, we teach the Bible, we use it for authoritatively in our lives for the things that we do, for the things that we teach. We follow the Word. We want to be a church of the Word. You know what I mean by that? And then church of the Spirit. Typically, uh, those church, church of the Spirit, is, is you want to be filled with the Spirit, used by the Spirit. You want to have the Spirit present and power in the things that you do. Typically, churches of the Word are more educational in nature. You show up to church to get educated, learn, learn what the Bible has to say about your life. Churches of the Spirit typically are more experiential in nature. We just want to come. We just want to experience God. It's both and. And so what I'm saying is that we need to be a a church that is a church of the Word and of the Spirit. We're a church that, we want to be a church that loves the Bible, that loves the Word, that preaches it unapologetically, like whatever it says, wherever it lands, we want to use it for our lives as authoritative and and helpful and practical for the way that we live our lives. And then we also want to be a church that not just is educated on God, but a church that experiences God. We want to be a church that that God shows up. How, How terrible would it be if we played the game of church for years and years and years and weren't a church where God actually showed up. And so what I'm, what I'm saying, is some of you after today, you're going to think I'm like trying to take our church in the direction of like wacko world. I'm not trying to do that. What I'm trying to do is saying we need to be a church that is, is a, ch- a church of the word and of the spirit that is both. That is, that, that, that is both. And I think we've probably been too far on the side of a church of the word and for me, for me personally, this, this has been uh, revolutionary for, for my life. Um, our elders have spent the past few months reading and dialoguing and having conversations about, about this, reading a lot. 
Um, I've personally been reading and trying to grow. Um, I grew up Baptist. I'm just a Baptist kid trying to figure out what it means to be led and, 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 and have the Holy Spirit present in power in, in my life. And what we have to recognize is that each of us, we come to the table with our own bias and baggage. What I mean by that is that uh, when you step through these doors, you have a history, you have a past, you have circumstances, you have situations in which you have lived, you have bias about what you think about the Holy Spirit, you have an idea in your mind of what you think God can do and what God can't do. And then we have baggage of things that we've been hurt by, maybe people that have done some things that were maybe out of bounds or things that we have been uh, foreign to concepts, and we have our own baggage when we go. And what I'm saying is that as best we can, we need to take our, our bias and our, our baggage and just try as best we can to set it to the side and let the Spirit, let the Word, let the Bible speak for itself. Amen? Amen. That, that, that's our heart. That's, that's our goal. And so that's what I'm going to try to do today. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. If you're new, by the way, if this is your first time, um, I hope you come back. <laughs> I hope you uh, enjoy your first time uh, at the bridge. Hopefully it's not your only time at the bridge. We're going to jump into the deep waters today, okay? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. This is uh, how, what Paul says. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So the context of this letter, it's a guy named Paul. He's the apostle. He is a church planner. He travels from city to city to city in the first century throughout the Mediterranean world, starting churches, preaching the gospel and seeing amazing things happen, churches being started, people giving their lives to Jesus, just un unbelievable things happen. And the church just takes off so much so that really in a couple centuries in the Roman Empire, half of the Roman Empire are Christians. It's just an amazing movement of, of the gospel. And Paul, one of the cities that he stops at and preaches at is the city of Corinth. And that's why he wrote a letter. That's why we title it Corinthians, to the Corinthians. It's the first letter that he writes of several to the Corinthians. And of all the churches in, um, in the Bible that we read about, the church in Corinth was the most messy. It was just jacked up. I mean, you read and you're like, did, they, did that really happen? Did that really go on? It's, it's one of the most messy churches that we, that we know of because the culture, you can imagine, Las, uh, sorry, Corinth is kind of like the Las Vegas of, of the ancient world, and people are becoming Christians and they're bringing all their junk into church, which is what happens to all of us, by the way. You become Christian, you, you bring your own junk in the church, and then we try to help you figure out how to, how to work, work through it together. And so there's all sorts of interesting chaos and, and things that are happening. And so he addresses, he addresses uh, the things of the Spirit. He addresses these things because they have allowed them, they become ignorant on them, and they have allowed divisions to happen between one another. So essentially what happens is survivor, you know, breaks out in the church in Corinth, you know, and so one of them has a certain gift. They're like, wow, you've got that gift and I have this gift and the Holy Spirit does this in your life and the Holy Spirit does this in your life. They start to keep track, you know, they start to keep a tally. Uh, they start to develop a little bit of division. They develop groups. Uh, they develop alliances and they start to kick people out. You know, it's, it's essentially kind of survivor in, in the first century. And what Paul is trying to get them to understand is like, what are you doing? you're ignorant. He says, I want you to be unaware. What are you doing? Why in the world would you ever let that to cause divisions among you? He's like, it just can't happen. And so what he's really doing for the next three chapters is he's saying, hey, divisions just, just cannot, cannot happen. I'll, I'll say it this way. Division has no place in the church. <laughs> but Ethan, she said this about me. 
But Ethan, you know, I theologically I have a different perspective than he does, you know. But Ethan, you know, I have this role in the church and this person doesn't have that role in the church and they should respect me and they should do No, there should be no divisions in the church. None. Which means the moment that you feel yourself starting to be divided from someone in the church is the moment that you have to get rid of that division. Which is the moment that you have to go to that person and reconcile that. Paul says in the beginning of the letter in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same spirit. There just can't be division. What that means is that by the end of the sermon today, you are going to have opportunity for division. You're going to have opportunity uh, to maybe have something, some kind of theological perspective that may be a little bit different. I don't even assume that I'm going to get it all right today, uh, but even if I don't get it all right, and even if you don't get it all right, we cannot allow there to be div- divisions present here on, on this issue. You know what I mean? That means we're, we're a family. We're a body. We work through it together. We don't split churches because we have uh, disagreements over the fine nuances of theological interpretation of a certain passage. It means that we get along and we work through it together and don't let divisions happen, which means I have to be willing to change, you have to be willing to change, I have to be willing to compromise, you have to be willing to compromise, and we come and meet in the middle and we reconcile and figure it out together. Amen? Amen. And Paul says that there just can't be divisions at at all uh, among you. And and then he, he says this. I have to point this out before we move on from verse one. He says, concerning spiritual gifts. Now, what's interesting in the original language here is that the word gifts isn't in there. The Greek word is pneumatikos, which is a term that simply means the spirituals or the things of the spirit. And what's unfortunate is that in English, we don't have a good trans, uh, translation or a good equivalent for this word. And so the translators, they throw the word in gifts to try to help us understand what Paul means. But that's actually a narrow way of viewing what is getting ready to happen. When Paul says the pneumatikos, when he says the things of the Spirit, he uses this term throughout several of his letters, and he, he, can, be, he can reference uh, the people of the Spirit, the benefits of the Spirit, the teachings of the Spirit, the blessings of the Spirit, and so much more. And so what Paul is doing here is what we have to be careful on. He's not necessarily giving us, hey, here's your checklist for spiritual gifts. He's, he's giving us rather a concept, an idea to understand all the things of the Spirit, He's trying to broaden our perspective on the way that the Holy Spirit would work in our church and, and in our, our lives. And so here's, here's why this is important. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, the church has tried to fit him in a box, myself included. We make lists of various gifts of the Spirit. We make categories for the things that the Holy Spirit does or doesn't do. We even create nice little charts and inventories and spiritual gift tests in order to try to figure out exactly what gift we have and what gift we don't have. And what we've done is we've essentially tried to create a formula to figure out the Holy Spirit and determine what he will do. And here's what I'll say to that. You can't fit the Spirit of God in a box. You can't fit the Holy Spirit in a box. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. The God of the universe, the creator and the maker of the heavens, the God who came up with the idea of a universe, the God who thought of oxygen, the God who came up with hydrogen and molecules and atoms, 
And Isaiah tells us that God, he hung the stars in the sky like your grandmother hangs her laundry on the clothesline. That's how easy it was for God. And that this is the God who with his lips spoke planets into existence. The God who fashioned humanity. The God who split open the Red Sea. The God who made the sun stand still. Do you feel me? This is the Holy Spirit. He isn't a test to be figured out. He isn't an inventory to be completed. He is the radical, uncontainable, incomparable, unimaginable God of the universe. He is the Holy Spirit. And what we've unfortunately done is put more of a focus on the gifts of the Spirit rather than on the Spirit Himself. And the ultimate gift is the Spirit of God. And the gifts aren't a means in themselves. They are the presence of God himself, of himself. And so I'll say this. It's not about experiencing. It's not primarily about experiencing a gift. It's about experiencing God. It's about God. It's about God showing up in your life. When's the last time that God showed up in your life? It's about God showing up in your marriage. It's about God showing up in your family, with your kids, with your family situation that is driving you crazy. It's about God that is intersecting himself in your life and making his power and his presence known in your addiction, in your pain, in your, in your, in your hurt, in your past, in your abuse, whatever it is. It's about God making himself known. I love the way that Sam Storms puts it. He says this, spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. They are not some tangible stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. That's what it means. That is what it means to experience the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? Half of you were stunned. Verse 2. Verse 2, he goes on and he says this. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I'll break this down for you like this. Before they became Christians, they were pagans. They had pagan idolatry, which means they worshipped all sorts of kinds of God that were in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a hotbed not only for immorality, but it was a hotbed for all sorts of kinds of spirituality. Which means when you went to the pagan temple that you were very regularly uh, uh, experienced experience all sorts of different kinds of spiritual things. It would be manifestations, it would be utterances, revelations, all sorts of interesting things that would happen. Well, they would become Christians. They became Christians and enter, entered the church. And then God would reveal himself and make himself known and work. But they didn't really have categories for kind of understanding what was from God and what was not. What was fake and what was phony, huh? person just told me that I need to marry my girlfriend. Is that from God? <laughs> or is that somebody else? Like, you know, or, or this or that or whatever happened. They didn't really understand. Like, it was trying to have categories. And G, uh, Paul, rather, he, he says, the litmus test for how you know that someone is speaking from the Spirit of God is this, if they are able to articulate Jesus is Lord. Now, you hear Jesus uh, is Lord, and uh, you're a 21st century American that really doesn't have much of an impact on your life. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was referred to, he was recognized as a god, which means 
whenever you encountered Caesar, whenever you encountered a Roman leader or governor or some kind of leader in the Roman Empire, you would have to say, Caesar is Lord. It was a way of you giving your honor and your due towards Caesar as the highest, the ultimate being in the entire uh, empire. He He was referred to as God. Well, Christians, these Christians experienced a new God, a God they had never heard of before, a God that left uh, heaven, a God that entered human history, a God that took on human flesh, a God that lived on the world and walked on the ground and ate food and did amazing, miraculous things and talked about a kingdom and then went to a cross and gave himself for his people to start a a, a nation, a new kingdom of, of God's people. And then he rose from the the grave, unlike anyone ever in the history of the world. These Christians experienced Jesus for the first time, experienced that he was God, that he was the only God, and then would substitute Caesar and they would say, Jesus is Lord. And if you were caught as a Christian referencing Jesus as Lord in Rome, you would just be executed or imprisoned on the spot. And one of my favorite stories is a story of one of the early church leaders who lived in the late first century, a guy by the name of Polycarp, which doesn't mean multiple fish, but Polycarp. Um, And he was a church leader. He was a bishop. He was a pastor. He taught. He preached. He he started churches. He did um, uh, amazing things. And the Roman leaders were always after him, trying to pin him down, trying to uh, uh, persecute him, trying to imprison him. And near the end of his life, they finally catch up with him, and they command him, and from front of a mob of people, they command him to say with his lips that Caesar is Lord. And I love what he, he says in response to them. He says this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And refusing to say that, they burned him alive at the stake. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to encounter the God of the Bible. It means Jesus becomes for you a Lord. He becomes God. He becomes your first loyalty and your honor and your your reverence and your life is devoted to him and you give your life to him because he is God. And Paul says that's a litmus test for how you know someone has the ability to speak through the spirit of God. It's Jesus. Do they know? I love that. In, in, the middle of a phrase, in the middle of a paragraph on spiritual gifts, what does Paul do? He takes it back to Jesus. I love it because it's, it's all about Jesus. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 4. Paul says this. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord, who is Christ. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, these three verses are absolutely beautiful. Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to understand that there are a variety of ways that the Holy Spirit works. Spirit works through all sorts of different kinds of ways and things that he does, and he's trying to get them to understand that God may work in your life in a way that's different than the person beside you. God may do some things in the life of a believer in your church and may not do that in someone else's church, but that's okay. We don't have to cause divisions, and here's why. When Paul mentions these three things, he ties each of them to the Trinity. He says it's the same Spirit. He says it's the same Lord. He says it's the same God. What's he doing? He's he's putting a foundation for what he is saying on the Trinitarian God of the Bible. 
What that means is that the Bible teaches about God. It tells us that God is a Trinitarian God. It means he is one being in three persons, that he is unified as one being, but you could say he is diverse in his personhood. He is three persons. I like the way that Jimmy Needham says it in his spoken word. He says this about the Trinity, perfect in unity, perfect in diversity, holy Trinity. And what Paul is saying is that diversity within the church is a good thing. And he's not even yet talking about ethnic diversity or social diversity or any other. He's talking specifically about the way that the Holy Spirit would work in diverse ways and gifts in our lives. And he says that that kind of diversity is a good thing because it reflects the diverse uh, nature of who God is. That may may be a shock to, uh, to, to some of us, but we worship a God who is a diverse God. Paul says it this way, even more explicitly in Ephesians 3.10, he says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The Greek word here for manifold could also be translated as multifaceted or multicolored or diverse. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians and in our passage as well is saying that diversity within the church is a beautiful thing because it reflects the diversity of God, which means you don't need to get a pity party. Because somebody has some kind of gift or thing in their life that you don't have in your life. We don't need to get upset and have divisions among one another because God does something in somebody's life and they don't do that in my life. God made him the preacher and not me. God made uh, him this or her that and, and, and not me. It's beautiful that God works in your life in different ways that he does than mine. It's beautiful that he works in all sorts of different kinds of ways because it reflects the diverse nature of God. Now, let me break down these three categories that, that he says that he describes here in, in the verses, verses four through six. He says three things, and he ties them to the Trinity, but the three things are this. The first one, he says, varieties of gifts, varieties of gifts. The Greek word here for gifts is the word charismatone or the word charismata. That's where charismatic churches get their name from. It's from the Greek word charis, charismata, and it means grace. And so in English, we translate it as gifts. It means we receive something. It's a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's that the Holy Spirit, he gave us something, and we just use it as a means of grace as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He says a variety of gifts, and then he says the second thing, a variety of services, a varieties of service. The Greek word here is, uh, is the word diakonos. It, it means ministry. It's where we get the word deacon from. It means there's a variety of different ministries in, in which we serve one another in the church. And then the third thing he says is a variety of activities. The Greek word here is energema. It means the working. It means the efforts in which energy is involved. It's where we get our uh, English word energy from. The idea is that there's all sorts of various kinds of activities in which the Holy Spirit, which God would work in and through, through, through us. And so the big idea is that Paul is saying is that there are a lot of different ways in which God works in and through our lives, all kinds of gifts, all kinds of ministries, all kinds of activities in which we do through the power and the presence of God in our lives. That's important for later. And then verse 7, he goes on and he says this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So let me clarify what, what manifestation means. Manifestation means when something is made known. To manifest something is to make it known or to make it present. And Paul uses the word with reference to the Holy Spirit, and he's saying that the Holy Spirit makes himself known. That the Holy Spirit, in moments, in circumstances, in situations, he makes himself known in your life. We don't determine when and how and what and who, 
But there are moments in which the Holy Spirit makes himself present in our lives. Now, I will say just for clarification, when you become a believer, when you understand the gospel, when you understand what Christ has done for you, Jesus in your place for your sins, the Holy Spirit comes and he resides in you. Uh, Paul says it later in 2 Corinthians 5 that we become a new creation, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that we receive the Holy Spirit. However, Paul also has language to demonstrate that there are certain ways in which the Holy Spirit really makes himself manifest in our lives. Which means if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you and through you and living in you. But there are moments, there are times, there are situations where the Holy Spirit, you could say, he likes to show off. He likes to show off. He likes to make himself present. He likes to do something in your life and through the people around you in order, to, uh, in order for, for glory to happen. He makes himself known. I, um, one of my um, good friends who is a part of the bridge here, he's in my community group. Um, just a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation as, as a group. He's a new believer, so he doesn't have like um, a lot of categories for church stuff. He's, he's never been in church. I mean, when he was a kid, I think he, he grew up in the Catholic church for a little while, but just doesn't have any, any categories for church stuff. And so we were having a conversation uh, the other day, and, he's, and he, he's talking with me, and he says, hey, I don't know if um, anybody else uh, experiences this. He says, but when I'm, um, when I'm at the bridge I feel like God is sitting right beside me. Does that happen to anybody else? Everybody's like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. But what is that for him? It's God making himself known. It's making himself present in his life. It's God giving him a tangible experience of his presence and his work. It's a manifestation it's one of the various ways in which God would reveal himself and make himself known in a situation. It's the revealing of God. Now, let's answer the question, why? What is the purpose of God making himself known, making himself present in your life? Here's the way that, that Paul says it. Paul says it is for the common good. For the common good. This is huge. The Corinthians, they were wrapped up in themselves and they viewed the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives as kind of like an individual thing. It was kind of like their own promotion. They elevated certain gifts and certain activities above other people uh, in order so that they could feel good about themselves, in order so that they could feel very spiritual, so they could have warm fuzzies or, or whatever they wanted to do. And Paul says that is not the reason why the Holy Spirit makes himself present in your life. The Holy Spirit doesn't make himself present in your life so that you can have some kind of like crazy elevated prophetic ministry above everybody else and make yourself feel good. That's not, that's not why he does that. The Holy Spirit makes himself known in your life for the common good. That means the gifts, the activities, the ministries, the, pres- the, the presence of God in your life isn't necessarily for your good. It's for the person that's sitting beside you today. That means the reason why God wants to work through you today for the good of the person that's sitting right beside you. And the end goal of the Spirit's presence in your life is not your own good, but it is the good of others, which has been a revolutionary idea for me recently. This has been a revolutionary idea because what this means is that if the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life isn't primarily about my good, but about your good, then that means that the gifts of the Spirit in my life are only valuable as valuable as when they benefit you. And that means my gifts exist for the good of others rather than me. And it also means that the primary way the Holy Spirit works in our lives is through community, through biblical community, the family of the church. I'll say it this way. 
The primary moments in which the Holy Spirit works is when we are together. And what that means is that whenever we are together, we should expect the Holy Spirit to do his thing. I'll break it down for you like this. Uh, LeBron James is a pretty fantastic basketball player. He's pretty good, you know. I mean, one-on-one, you know, I could probably handle him for a few minutes, but he's a pretty, he's a pretty, uh, he's a pretty good ball player. Um, Imagine if you got to show up to practice one day and uh, they, you, know, you were able to sit there and watch practice and he stayed after later because he wanted to work on his footwork, his dribbling skills, his shot, all that stuff. He's doing 360 dunks. He's just, he's just doing his thing because he's the king, right? Now, that would be pretty fantastic, right? You get a front row seat to be able to watch him. He's the only one on the court. He's kind of doing his thing. He's, that'd be, that'd be pretty, pretty cool, right? But you don't really get to see LeBron James shine until he plays with Kyrie Irving. You don't really get to see everything that LeBron James can do until there's four other guys on the court that can play with him. You know what I mean? You don't really get to experience everything that he can do until he's on the court with others and able to, to use his skills and his gifts and his talents. That's kind of what Paul is trying to get us to understand. You might be good with the Holy Spirit you know, in your room, doing your thing, on your own, your quiet time. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life and make himself known. He does in my life. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. But the way, the place that the Holy Spirit really demonstrates his power in his work is when we're together. That means if you want to experience God, you shouldn't climb a mountain and sit on the peak and do yoga, even though that's probably be awesome. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, you show up with other believers wherever they are. You show up here, you show up to community group, you show up to the the church because it's in this context where God makes himself known and makes himself present in our lives. Amen? That's why I just can't understand people that call themselves Christians and they're like, you know, I don't need the church. The church is my boat and my beer sitting on the beach, you know, and and it just, what are you talking about? That isn't the church. The church isn't you in a coffee shop by yourself with one other dude. The church is God's people organized under the way that God has instructed it to do. And when we gather together, that is the means and the power in which the presence of the Holy Spirit is revealed. I'm just going to go on this a little bit further because I want to. When you look at the Old Testament, and this is in my notes, when you look in the Old Testament, you see the place that the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, go to experience God. Do you remember what it is? It's in the temple, it's in the tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle was special uh, areas and places where, in which you wanted to experience God and God's power and his presence work Then you had to go into. Once a year, the high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies in order to make sacrifices for the sins uh, of, of the people, and that's where he experienced God, and hopefully he was sinless and blameless and made the right sacrifices because he would die if he didn't. And then you see in the, Holy, in the New Testament, rather, Jesus as he's hanging on the cross and he dies, what happens to the temple? The veil in the temple is torn in two. What does that mean? That means everyone now has access to the Spirit. And Peter says this later in one of his letters. He says, the church, we are a chosen people, a new nation, a holy race of people of God's own possession. And we are like living stones. What he's, what's he referring to? He's referring to the temple. What that means is that where God's power and his presence now reside is not primarily in a coffee shop by yourself listening to your headphones. 
It means that where God's power is made known is in the church, is the New Testament temple of God's people where he makes himself powerful and present in our lives. Which is why we, that's why the church is a, church is a big deal. That's why, that's why we, we make an investment to be a part of this local body. It's why we are invested. It's why we support. It's why we lock our arms together because it's through the church that is God's plan and his mission for the hope for the world. It's through the church. That was just a soapbox. So hope you enjoyed that. Now look at me at verse 8. Here's the fun stuff. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, or the message of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit. He's talking about unity a lot there in the Spirit. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So what Paul does here is he gives us what I would call a laundry list of nine manifestations in which the Holy Spirit now works in our lives. Now, what I'm getting ready to say is going to be incredibly radical for many of you, all right? So if you are part of the frozen chosen crowd, put on your seatbelt, pop a couple Tylenol because this is going to be hard for you. Many churches and many denominations in our day hold to a belief that's called cessationist theology. What that means is that they believe certain miraculous manifestations of the Spirit have ceased, cessationists, ceased to exist, that God no longer does those kinds of miraculous things anymore, and that they were only for the time period associated with the apostles. Now, I'm not going to dive headlong into this uh, right now at this moment because I address it fairly explicitly in a couple weeks. Um, but I will say this, is that that line of thought just cannot be supported uh, from the Bible. You just have to do all sorts of uh, exegetical you know, uh, hula hoops to try to get through explaining. It's just, there's just nowhere in the New Testament that tells us that miraculous manifestations of the Spirit have ceased. And the main text that people use to argue in their defense is the passage that I'll be addressing in a couple weeks in chapter 13. So, as a church, that means we should pursue all nine of these manifestations. And we should expect God to work in our church and in our city uh, just as he always has throughout history. Now, here is the second radical thing I'm going to say about these verses Paul's primary goal in listing these nine manifestations is not to give us a list of spiritual gifts that we should analyze, that we should scrutinize in order to determine which ones we have and which ones we don't. Prior to this list, Paul actually only mentions the word gifts, charismata, once back in verse 4 when he strings it together with the other services and activities that he mentions. And so Paul is not trying to give us a confined list of gifts in which we check off which ones we think we have and which ones we don't. Rather, based on the text, Paul is giving us a category for various manifestations of the Spirit, ways in which God chooses to make His presence and His power known in our lives and in our church. And what that means is that if you are a believer here today, that any one of these nine manifestations could be present in your life at various times, in various situations, in various circumstances. 
And I think that one of the unfortunate things that we've done with this text and ones like it is to operate like God only makes his presence uh, known in one way for, for each of us. We typically think when it comes to spiritual gifts, take a test, take a survey, take an inventory, here's a list, uh, answer a few questions, check off which one you have, that's the one that you have, hope you like it, good luck, you've got it for the rest of your life. Which there is an element, you know, not to, to down the inventory thing too much because I've done it myself. Um, there is something to be said about there is probably a primary way in which God gifts, to use that word, makes himself known, he manifests himself through your life, some kind of role, which probably is a common way in which he does that on a regular basis for you. But I think a better way to understand this is to recognize that God, he can work in your life however he wants to in any way, shape, or form, depending on the circumstance and the situation. Here's, here's a couple of verses why I think this is the case. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, later at the end of our chapter, Paul says this, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. That means that he is telling you that you should desire a gift that you do not have. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. It's a command. He's commanding you that you should desire these, these gifts, these charismata, these ways in which he works with his presence. Another one, 1 Corinthians 14, a couple chapters further. 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says this, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. What does he say there? Every believer should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It means all, all the gifts that you should, and especially that you may prophesy. What is his expectation? He's expecting that at least at some point in your life or various times in your life that the Holy Spirit is going to work through prophecy in your life, perhaps. And he says it is a good thing for you to desire that and to pursue that. Now, I find it interesting that Paul doesn't like, he lists, he kinda, it's kind of a bummer to me as like a theological nerd. He lists the nine manifestations, but he doesn't explain any of them. It's like, whoa, whoa, hang on, Paul, hang on, hold on. Can you break that one down for me? See, he, he doesn't spend time belaboring the point of giving definitions and explanations of each one. The reason is because he expects that all of these kinds of things should be present. And so he's just kind of giving a laundry list that you should recognize that God works in all sorts of different kinds of ways in his church. Now, for your sake and for my sake, I'll try to explain quickly what I think these mean. I'm going to run through them briefly. He doesn't spend a lot of time explaining them, so I'm not. So here's number one. He says, utterances of wisdom, or what I would call the message of wisdom. The Greek word here for utterances is the word logos. It means speech. It means word. It means a message. It means that there are circumstances and situations in your life in which the Holy Spirit will make himself present through an utterance of wisdom, through a, um, through a word of wisdom. You ever been in a situation, I think this probably happens quite often to us and we don't recognize it. You ever been in a situation where you're trying to figure out what you should do? decision you should make, kind of at a crossroads, kind of like, God, what in the world should I do? And then someone in your life, a believer comes along and just offers this utterly profound word of wisdom to you. <laughs> and without even knowing all the details and the circumstances, what is that? That's a message of wisdom in your life. That's God making himself known in your life through someone else, through a word of wisdom. And he says this one. He says the next one, number two. He says the utterances of knowledge or the, the message of knowledge. It's the same word here. It's, it's a word of, of knowledge. This is perhaps God may be giving you some kind of a supernatural insight into a situation, maybe into something biblical or theological, and God just offers you a, a, word, of, a word of knowledge, just something that you didn't necessarily learn or study or be educated on, and God just kind of revealed it to you and had a word of knowledge for, for the situation. 
It's a word of knowledge. Then number three, he says faith. He says faith. This isn't necessarily faith to become a Christian. This is faith in your life in which you feel like you should do something that seems impossible, that God has inspired you, that God has called you, that there is something that you should do and you have this conviction to do it and no one else thinks perhaps that it's a great idea, but you believe that God wants you to do it. That's faith. That's, that, that's the gift of, of faith. It's the manifestation, rather, of, of faith. I look at my own life, and I think back to these past couple years where I moved my family, young family, a stable job, stable income, house, everything, left a stable situation, brought with two, child, two children under the age of three, moved to a city that I had never lived in before, with a bunch of people that I have never lived life before, and thought that it would be a good idea to start a church. Who does that? Crazy people. That there just is nothing logical about. There's just no, that is just never like a reasonable idea in the mind of anyone. Why would I? I'm looking. I'm like, how? Who? Why did I ever think that was a good idea? What is that? That's faith. That's God giving me the ability to believe in something that seems impossible, something that seems unimaginable. And the only reason, the only explanation for it is, is faith. And the fourth one he says is gift of healings. This is exactly what it sounds like. This is God healing people. I don't know if you knew this, but God is still in the business of healing people. God is still God. He hasn't changed he still has dominion over the universe. He still has the power to do whatever he wants. It means that God can make cancer go away if he chooses. It means God can heal your baby if he chooses. It means God can take away anything in your life that would be an, an, an affirmity if he chooses. He's a God of healing. He's a God of, he, he wants to demonstrate his power and his goodness and his grace. And there are moments and there are times where people are healed. This happened not too long ago to one of our elders. This was a few months ago. One of our elders had been going through months and months and months of this respiratory issue of this cough of this thing that was really debilitating. That was kind of like uh, taking him almost into to, to moments of depression and just thinking really down about his life and situation and months and months. And we show up on a Sunday morning and he's just kind of really down about it. And we said, well, why don't we, why don't we pray? Why don't we pray and just you know, ask that God would work and he would do something in your life? So we're literally standing over here about 30 feet away. About three or four of us, I don't even remember, I don't remember exactly who it was. I just remember it happening. We, we pray, we pray for God to do a work in, in his life, and we're like, all right, the prayer's done. We, you know, we walk away. A couple days later, a couple days later, he says, you know that cough, respiratory thing that I've been battling for for months? He says, it's gone. I didn't take any new medicine. I didn't go to a different doctor. I didn't change my diet or anything. He just says, it's gone. And I said, you've been healed. God healed you. God worked in your life. God did that to demonstrate his power and his goodness in your life. And he, he took it away. And he's, he's good and he's beautiful. And we give praise to God for that. He drawed glory to himself. It's, it's a gift of healing. Then he, then he says, working of miracles. This, this word miracles, it's, it's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word power from. It's, it's anything powerful. It's anything powerful that God would do to demonstrate significant power in a situation. Maybe that means casting out a demonic spirit. 
in someone's life. Which we believe in demonic spirits. It means raising someone from the dead. God still does that. There, there's a story, I'll tell you briefly, of a couple missionaries that are a part of the uh, mission board that we're part of called the International Mission Board. And I was with uh, the president uh, a, few, a few days ago at a, at a conference, and he was telling a story to a lot of pastors about a situation that had happened in Southeast Asia. So there's a couple missionaries that are in Southeast Asia who are in this village. It's unreached people groups. They don't have a church. They don't have a Bible. They don't know the gospel. And so these missionaries are kind of on the front lines of helping people understand who Jesus is for the first time, putting Jesus into their own, own language and explaining the story of God and, and who God is. And what's amazing is that people b- start becoming Christians. People in this village, they s- just start becoming Christians. And, and they have all sorts of different kinds of idol worship and things. And they take off their jewelry and their necklaces and their amulets. And they come and they bring them into the center of the village to be, to be, to be burned. And there's like revival is, is breaking out. It's, it's amazing. Well, a couple days later, the missionaries recognize that the people are coming back to the center of the village where the pile is, and they're, they're taking the things back, and they're, they're going back to their homes and putting back on the jewelry and stuff, and they just, what is going on? They just can't explain it. It's just, I thought there was a revival break. What's happening? Well, they have a conversation with one of the people in the village, and they said, well, the leader of our village, he just died a couple days ago. And we believe that the reason that he died is because we transferred to this other God, and now our gods are now wreaking havoc on our village, and so we're going back to our previous gods. The missionaries are just, they're, they're devastated. They're like, what do we do? I mean, we, we've spent our lives like, trying to see like, God break into these people, and, and now they're turning away from it. What, what are we going to do? Well, after some, some time of thinking and praying, they decided that they would go into the, the home of the, the man who died. And in their culture, the custom is that you keep the deceased body in your home for a few days uh, as just a, a parting way to, um, I guess, spend time with the family. I, I don't know exactly. But they go into the home and they offer their condolences to the family and just express their, um, you know, that they're heartbroken over the, the situation. And they kind of feel led to, to go over to where the body is and just pray for the city, pray for the, the village rather, and just ask for God to work. And so there's, they're standing there and they're praying, they're asking God to make himself known and God to make himself glorious in the situation that seems to just gone completely uh, opposite to what they were thinking. And the man coughs. And they kind of look at each other and they're like, did that just happen? <laughs> And I mean, no one else really kind of, knows, and they're like, that was weird. Okay, and so, I mean, the, these are guys just like you and me. And, yeah, and so they just, they keep praying, God, would you make yourself known and your power and your presence? And would you, he coughs again. Like, we heard it that time. So they keep praying. The man starts to breathe. They keep praying. He, he sits up. And at that point, everyone in the house in the village comes and looks at this guy who is risen from the dead, a guy that had been dead for a few days, and he was, he was dead. He wasn't in a coma. I mean, he was, he was dead, dead, you know? And, uh, you know, they, they are like, I can't believe this is happening. And then all the people, they start worshiping Jesus, and they put their jewels and their amulets and everything back into the middle of the village to be burned, and revival breaks out all over again, and everybody begins to follow Jesus. Now... They had a little bit of skepticism, like, was that just an opportune moment? You know, was that just like a really great circumstance, you know? Maybe the guy was going to do it anyways. Maybe we just happened to be there. You know, there's a little bit of skepticism. And so they, they, they say this. I love, what they, um, I love what they say about the story. They say this. Uh, one of the missionaries, he says, even if he wasn't dead, God picked an opportune moment for the guy to cough. 
<laughs> Which means God was in that moment doing something. God was working. It was powerful. It was dunamis. It was something powerful that God revealed himself in, his, in that situation for his own glory. It's the working of miracles. And then number six. Number six, he mentions this one. Prophecy. Now, when you hear prophecy, when I hear prophecy, I immediately think the guy who has a huge end times chart, you know, huge end times map, you know, up on his uh, wall and tries to tell everybody when Jesus is coming back. That's not what uh, Paul means when he says prophecy. I like the way that Grudem, uh, Wayne Grudem defines it. He says this, prophecy is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. It's just spontaneously telling something that God has brought to mind. What that means is that prophecy is not primarily trying to predict the future or tell someone who they're going to marry or anything like that. Prophecy primarily just means speaking something in a situation in which God has brought to mind. I love the way that, that John Piper says it. He says this, Prophecy is not speaking on the behalf of God in such a way that is authoritative and infallible like Scripture. Prophecy is rather a spontaneous thought that God brings to mind that should be spoken into a moment and a situation. And we know that Paul doesn't refer to this as on the same level as, as Bible, as, as, as the Word, because he says we should test prophecies in a couple different places, which he wouldn't do. He, he never says that about Scripture. One of my favorite stories about um, the prophecy is from the 19th century uh, British uh, pastor named Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my heroes, and he says this in one of his stories. He says this happened quite often to him, but in one of the stories, he, he, he mentions what happened. He says this, while preaching in the hall, which is what he called the auditorium back in that day, while preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence, which is kind of crazy. And the man comes out afterwards and talks to Spurgeon and says, that was me, and that is exactly what happened to me. Crazy, but in that moment, God gave him a word of prophecy to be spoken into someone's life, and it may not always be something kind of crazy like, like that or uh, uh, supernatural like that or, or whatever, you, but it means that God, in a moment, in a situation, may have a word for someone and use you to speak it to them. So that's what it means. It means having a word of prophecy. Here's, here's the seventh one, the ability to distinguish between spirits. This essentially means that if someone has a prophecy, someone else has the ability to distinguish and determine whether or not that is a prophecy from God or some other spirit. It's kind of encouraging, right? <laughs> Person comes up to you, feel like God just told me, I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me that you need to marry this girl. It'd be nice to have some confirmation in other places other than just that person, right? That's the ability to distinguish between spirits. It means God may give you the ability in that moment, the gift to distinguish between the spirit, or he may bring someone else in you that you have the conversation with to determine whether or not that was from God or someone else. And then he says, number eight, various kinds of tongues. This is by far the most controversial one. The Greek word here for tongues, it's the Greek word glossa, which is a translated languages. I love the way that Sam Storms, he defines tongues. He says this, the gift of tongues is simply... The spirit-energized ability to pray, worship, give thanks, or speak in a language other than your own or one you might have learned in school. Also, we see that there are two forms of tongues that are mentioned in the New Testament. The first that is mentioned is in Acts chapter 2. 
in Jerusalem where Pentecost happens and the believers that are there are present are filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. In that situation, it's languages, it's earthly languages in which people hear in their own language. And then there's a second version of tongues that is mentioned in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And Paul describes it as a language that isn't known to the speaker or to the hearer, but rather is some kind of unintelligible language, some kind of heavenly or angelic language. And before you write off tongues too quickly, Paul says a few things regarding tongues, because you're like, that is weird. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 14, 5. He says this, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. That's a command. It's an encouragement to all of us. He says he wants all of us to be able to experience that. He says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That means that Paul, he, this was part of his life. It was part of his spirituality. It was a regular part of his life that he had some kind of um, Holy Spirit, heavenly, angelic language that God spoke through him on, uh, on a lot of circumstances and situations. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, if you're good at biblical interpretation... The first rule of biblical interpretation is you read the text at face value, and he says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. There's like no way to get around that. Well, if you look at the Greek, you know, you kind of, there's just, he just says, do not forbid speaking in tongues, which means I, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a leader, am not going to forbid you to speak in tongues, but rather would encourage you to investigate and experience and figure out what that would look like for your life. And I'll say one more, one more thing about tongues. We're going to dive into this way, way more in a, in a few weeks, but I'll say this. Just like every other gift, uh, tongues doesn't mean that you lose control of yourself and that you're in some kind of a trance or outer body experience. There's no indication anywhere in the Bible that people who speak in tongues lose self-control and become unaware of their surroundings. Paul even tells us later in, in chapter 14 that the person who is speaking in tongues can start and stop at will. Which means tongues is, yes, a very, it's a highly emotional and exhilarating experience, but it does not mean that tongues are ecstatic and that you just lose control and have no idea what's going on. That means that you're still intelligible. It's a gift just like any other gift that the Holy Spirit works. And then here's the last one, the interpretation of tongues. That essentially is the ability to interpret what the tongue is. It, what that means is that if God has a tongue for the church, when we are gathered together, he will always provide an interpretation for that tongue and we'll spend more time on this in, in chapter 14, where Paul gives us clear guidelines for how we should go about tongues. And he essentially says that there, if there is not someone there that has the interpretation for it, then it should be something that you keep silent on. That's something you should do in private rather than in public. And here's, here's the last verse. I'll be done with this. Here's what he says. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul wraps up our passage with one more powerful statement. He says that all these manifestations, not just like half of them, all these manifestations are empowered by one and the same Spirit, and all of these are ways in which God makes himself known to his people and Paul says, lastly, that he, the Holy Spirit, distributes, he apportions to each one individually as he wills. 
And what that means is that you don't determine how and when and to what degree you will be used by the Holy Spirit. He determines that, not us. And he determines it as he wills. And that means that he can empower anyone at any moment and any time as he chooses. I think what this means for us is that we need to be a people that are eager to see God show up in our lives and have open hands for God to be able to reveal himself in your life however he sees fit. And when you do that, when we experience that, when we do that corporately, collectively, it is for the common good. It's for the good of our body. It's, it's for our good that we do this, and it's scriptures. It's what God has for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us in this moment, that you would give us the ability to have wisdom and knowledge to understand what your word says, how it applies to our lives, what it looks like in our church. God, I pray that your spirit would would move and would help and would guide and would lead us and that we would be a church that's not just a church of the word, but that's a church of the spirit. So God, we ask for your help in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.